being able to walk around freely, not being worried about being harassed. I was able to just be free and, and just um, be myself. I felt affirmed. We've only just Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to Living Color Abroad. I'm your host, Angel Rodriguez. And in this episode, you'll be listening to Kwame, who is living abroad in Sierra Leone. Kwame takes us through his first experience living abroad as a teenager in Ghana. He mentions the trials and tribulations of growing up there, and also how he felt closer to his roots as a Ghanaian-American. Also, Kwame discusses as an adult with his family living in Ethiopia and the differences between Ethiopia and Sierra Leone and how he felt affirmed in one country and ostracized in another. He also mentions our positionality as individuals and how that is very fluid in the different jobs we hold and our and our statuses that we hold while we're abroad. And last but not least, Kwame talks about what we can do as foreigners and expats abroad to make the lives of those around us better and more equitable. Hope you enjoy. This is Eleven Color Abroad. to it all right Kwame welcome to in living color abroad how you doing man man I'm doing good brother uh, it's great to be on how you feeling I'm good I'm good I'm good enjoy enjoying your Sunday uh yes sir just in, just relaxing with the family awesome 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 so uh, let's get right to it please Kwame to our listeners a little bit about yourself so hello everybody my name is Kwame Safamensa um I am an educator by trade uh, but I have a pretty interesting story. So uh, both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa, and they um, emigrated to the United States in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, my father would go on to be an actuary, work at Edna for a number of years before going to retirement. Uh, my mom, she went to school for nursing uh, wasn't able to finish her education because, you know, she had my brother and uh, my other siblings. So, you know, you look so at an early age, I was able to be exposed to just the dynamic of, of patriarchy where the man was able to go and pursue, you know, his career aspirations. And while the woman was relegated to more domestic responsibilities. So this is something that I saw from the time that I was young. Uh, and this was something that would ultimately shape my own worldview. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff there. So let's get let's get right to it. I know. So for yeah. those that are wondering how I got how I how I got to meet you know quote quote meet Kwame, um, I attended a webinar. I guess what you call it a seminar on on the web the interwebs <laughs> webinar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Kwame was uh, one of the speakers, and it was a webinar uh, held by ISS International School Services. And he was one of amazing uh, speakers there. And once I heard what he was talking about, I'm like, man, I got to have this guy on the podcast. <laughs> so he was talking about a lot of powerful things within um, education, international education, intersectionality, uh, biases that we all have, and things of that uh, things of that sort. So l- let's go into education. You teach math? 
Yeah, so uh, I teach math. So I taught at the middle school level for many years, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Did do one year of high school geometry online, but for the most part, it's always been middle school math. <laughs> got you, got you, got you. And so, what, what got what got you into? Uh, again, you, you you mentioned the background of of your parents and when they immigrated to the states. But what got you into education? So you know, coming from a West African household, um, education was always a priority within our family. My siblings and I always knew that once we finished high school, the next stage would be university mm. or college. But during that, but during my undergrad, though, I was doing some work study work uh, through the YMCA close to my alma mater, Temple University in Philadelphia, um, doing mentoring, doing tutoring. And that was really my first exposure to working with children. Mm. So I did that throughout my whole undergrad. Uh, you know, everything you can think of. Mentoring, summer camp counseling, tutoring, volunteering to help students, you know, all that. And um, I can't say that I was sold on teaching after that. I knew that I had an interest in working with students, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my degree. It was a math degree. I know I didn't want to go into um, finance or engineering or any of those more lucrative uh, career paths mm. that so many um, African parents want their children to pursue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I knew I wasn't destined for that, uh, but I knew that I wanted to do something with kids in some capacity. So I decided to... Um, enroll in an AmeriCorps program called Education Works, which is pretty similar to uh, City Year um, and other programs within that AmeriCorps umbrella, where you pretty much uh, do volunteer service for a year or two, um, and you end up getting an education award at the end of your service, which you could use towards going back to school. So I um so I end up doing that for about a year and a half working in um an elementary school in Philadelphia, not too far from my from my own university. And it was during that time that I realized like the inequities that exist um between different types of schools. So like working in urban schools, like you saw the resources that weren't available for students. You saw the disparities between, you know, the white teachers and other teachers of color. But then we're in an environment where majority of the student body is Black and Latinx. So I just, I wasn't quite sure why there was such a disconnect there and why the disparities existed. But just by being in that environment, I was just able to see more and more of those things and it just came to a point where I just thought, you know, I could do this. I like being with kids. I'm really good at math. I'm going to go ahead and be a math teacher. Mm. And, and that's when the journey, that's really when the education journey started for me officially. So mm. um, I'll do that, get my Ed Award, go back to school. 
to uh, get my master's degree and my teacher certification and you know, as we all say, the rest is history. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you get that master's in? The master's was in elementary education. Okay. And my uh, my initial certification was in elementary education uh, K through six. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right. It's funny. Uh, I'm also an elementary teacher. I teach music, so that's what's up. Good to see uh, men in elementary. There's very few of us, I'm sure you know, <laughs> especially men of color yes, teaching at el elementary schools. Um, but and I worked in New York, so it's cool that you worked in the East Coast, uh, Philadelphia. So so you, 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 you took us through that journey of like, how you found mathematics and education and eventually becoming a teacher. When did it come into your mind that... You were pot, you were gonna go abroad to Sierra Leone. Okay. When did that happen? So I need a so in order to get to that point, I need to backtrack a little bit <laughs> okay. in my history. So so after um, after my sixth grade year, I actually ended up moving to Ghana with my father and my younger sister hmm. uh, because my father had taken early retirement from Etna and he wanted to start a business with his high school buddies back in Ghana. So my sister and I ended up going with him and we actually stayed out there for three years. So we were going to school in Ghana. We were living with uh, different family members at different um, points of time during those three years while our house was being built. And um, that was really my first taste of, of a broad life. Mm. Um, just, and it was, it was cool. I mean, at first it was, it was difficult because, you know, you, you know, being American and living in this country, you realize, oh, how many, the amount of privileges you have, mm -hmm. like how easy things are. Like we, we take so much for granted as far as utilities and other basic necessities. So to go from that to, to a country where, it's one of the more developed countries in Africa, but still, your lights are getting shut off every other day. Mm. Water is being shut off every other day. So you have to learn how to ration your water in order for it to preserve for a longer time. So like having to make that transition was difficult for me as a 12-year-old. But over time, I grew to appreciate you know, being there. So having that experience from ages 12 through 15, in a way, prepared me to go abroad again as an adult uh, with my wife and with my kids. And and as far as what led us to um, Sierra Leone, so my wife works with the Peace Corps. Okay. And um, our first post was actually in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So we started there in 2019, and we ended up staying there up until May of last year. So about three years we were we were at in Ethiopia. All right. So after you lived in Ethiopia, so that's where you, that was your first journey abroad. What took you to Sierra Leone? So, so as so Ethiopia. Um, <clears throat> When we were there uh, from 2019 to about early 2022, there was a lot of transition that we had to go through. Number one, COVID happened. Mm. 
So when COVID happened March of 2020, we had to we had to um, head back to Boston. Our home base is Boston. Mm. And we were there for 10 months. And this is pretty much all Peace Corps volunteers and, and staff. They had to go back to the States. That was a order from the government, <laughs> the State wow. Department. So, okay. so we had to do that. So we ended up spending almost a full year in the States before we can move back to Ethiopia. Uh, we get back to Ethiopia around um, January 2021. We're there for about maybe eight months, and then there was, and then that we we heard about a civil. I don't know if it was a civil war, but there was some there was some intertribal conflict going on between the t- between Tigray and Amhara in Ethiopia. Uh, that had long history of, of beef and everything, so. And it's all. It was also politically motivated too. Mm, okay. So there's 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 definitely some political tension there as well. Uh, but we but when we heard of the the threats of them moving heading to Addis Ababa to start to start you know warring right. Of course, State Department again is like, nope, we're not taking any chances. We're going to evacuate all of our mission employees ahead and bring them back to the states. Mm. <laughs> so we end up wow. going back to the state. Um, this is about November, yeah, like November 2021. And unfortunately, we weren't able to go back to Ethiopia to finish that tour. Oh, okay. Uh, so what ended up happening was while we we're in the states. We started to look for um, new posts to live in because, you know, Ethiopia, it was just a tough uh, couple years living in Ethiopia as a family. Um, definitely a tough couple years for me personally. Um, the constant back and forth, um, not being able to to secure employment uh, while being there, um, and even just the, the treatment that our family was receiving just from, you know, local folks. Um, it was it was tough. Like we just dealt with the colorism over there, and and you know, Ethiopia has a very unique history because they they were never quote unquote colonized. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, most African countries were. So they pride themselves in that, right? But then what's ironic is Ethiopia, Addis Ababa specifically, is the unofficial capital of the African continent. All mm. the embassies are there. All the missions are there. All the NGOs are located in Addis Ababa. So, it's, so in a way, it's a melting pot for Africa. But when you ask most people, they'll tell you, you know, it's not really a place that's welcoming to to, you know, dark and melanated Africans. That's so interesting. And wow. We kind of, we, we sense that um, just in our time there. Now, once again, that that was our experience. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that our experience was, is going to be like ours, but that's just what we had experienced there. 
Right. But as far as the historical, the historical landmarks and the value of Ethiopia, it's a place that everybody should go to. I would always, I will always endorse that. Like you should definitely go there for that. But as far as living there for an extended period of time, it's it's a different feeling. Got you, got you. And so, t- take me to the to, to the moment where you knew you were go- you were going to go to Sierra Leone. Take me through that process. Sure. So, so um, so my wife uh, just through Peace Corps, um, as a she was applying for different jobs because um, she she started off as a director for programming and training. So that's usually the second in command to the country director, mm-hmm. and um, she wanted to you know, get a, get a, um, pretty much advance her career. So she started to look for country director jobs, which is, which was always her goal to, to begin with. She always wanted to be a country director. So once she was able to get into the pool, there were a number of countries that she could choose from. And we knew that we wanted to stay within the African continent. So, looking at the different places where there was a vacancy and specifically where we'd have to learn, I guess, another language like French or Portuguese <laughs> um, that kind of narrowed it down to, uh, that narrowed it down to Sierra Leone. Mm. It was in West Africa. <laughs> it was only a couple hours away from Ghana where my uh, father still lives and my maternal grandmother still lives. So if we wanted to go there to visit, we can go there a lot easier. It'll be cheaper if we were living in Sierra Leone. So we looked at a lot of different factors there, but we just wanted to change the scenery. And then I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't know a whole lot about Sierra Leone. I was just uh, going to say, right. I was just going to ask you that because my only recollection of my only knowledge of Sierra Leone is from hearing Kanye sing about it in Diamonds Are Forever and in the right. movie Blood Diamonds, Leonardo DiCaprio. That's the only time I've ever heard Sierra Leone mentioned. Yeah, sorry, continue. Exactly, exactly. So outside of those uh, references that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I didn't really know a whole lot about Sierra Leone. Uh, so it was. So I said, you know what? I'm, I'm sure it's a cool spot. Let's let's go there and explore. And you know, thankfully, we've been, we we've enjoyed our time there. Like it's been amazing. Um, just being around the people. The people are friendly. It's a very chill um, place to live in. The language barrier is not one that you. It's not really much of a language barrier because the the official language is Creole, mm. and Creole is it's it sounds like broken English. So if you've ever been to Nigeria, Nigeria has like this pidgin English that they speak. Okay, and Ghana also has their own form of of English that's broken, and there are other countries too. But no, it's a it's a beautiful country. And although it's gone through so much, I mean, it went through a civil war, it's gone through Ebola crisis, and then also COVID. Um, It's a country that's still um, back on the come up, uh, development-wise. It's still rebuilding. Uh, They have their, you know, they have their, uh, their challenges, but it's definitely a place that is underrated and people should definitely... 
uh, come out here for sure. Okay. It's, it's Are you currently there right now? Um, yes. So okay. we live in Freetown, capital city. Mm. Um, I'm actually in Boston right now just for a few months, but usually we're based in uh, Freetown. Okay, got you, got you, got you. And so, so given that, like you said, when you first moved there or before you moved there, you didn't know much about Sierra Leone. How would sure. you, and when you first get there, take me to the first uh, couple of months, three months that you're like acclimating, even though you, like you said you're in West Africa, you're closer to, to Ghana, right? Which is a, part, a huge part of who you are. And so what was that initial transition like for you? Well, I mean, before we moved over there, we we just talked with different black expats who are who had lived in Sierra Leone or currently live there. So we we're able to get some background information about Sierra Leone from them just to start off. But once we landed there, all I can say was it was just friendly. The vibe was just was just different. Like it felt like home. Mm. Um, I don't know how else I could describe it. It, it just felt different. Um, just being able to walk around freely, not being worried about um, being harassed, you know, things like that. Like I was able to just be free and, and just um, be myself. I felt affirmed mm. in who I was. Like they they saw the they saw the locks they they saw us and they're like, hey Rasta, you know, <laughs> hey. I felt affirmed the moment I landed at the airport, um, and because there's so many similarities to Ghana in terms of just a lot of food that that they eat, um, and even the type of language that they speak, you know, with Creole, right. I already felt connected. And I think one thing about our family is we really have a strong Pan-Africanist spirit. Like we we really we're really about um the diaspora. No matter where we are, we could be in the Caribbean, we could be on continental Africa, we could be even somewhere in Europe. If we're as long as we see, you know, our people out there, we feel we feel like there is some type of connection we have to those people. Mm. Just through our shared lineage, our shared ancestry, just through even our shared histories. So um we're we're all about just connecting with, with the community. Right. And right. we felt that that's so interesting because again, talk talk about the, the differences because you just mentioned how your time in Ethiopia you were harassed, you experienced colorism, and then obviously we're talking about East Africa, then when you go to West Africa, is night and day, right? In terms of, like you said, you felt affirmed. So take yeah. this, for people like myself that I don't know very little to ne next to nothing about the history of Africa, and for those, our listeners, why is it from your insight that you have, obviously you lived on the continent for a number of years, what is it about the difference between, let's say, let's not generalize all of East Africa, but uh, typically speaking, East Africa and West Africa, especially for you as a dark-skinned black man coming from the States, why did you feel more affirmed there than you did on the other side? Man, and that's a question I, I still keep asking myself. Well, just to just to be specific, so yes, Ethiopia is in East Africa, but guess what? 
Kenya neighbors Ethiopia, Uganda neighbors Ethiopia, uh, Tanzania also neighbors Ethiopia. Those are three countries where I can go there. It feels like home. Wow! Wow! Okay. And they all are, and they all border Ethiopia. Mm. So Ethiopia, in particular, has a very different history from most African countries, like I mentioned before. Right. Right. Even to the point where, not to not to generalize, but I've 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 had I've heard Ethiopians even say some even say like no we're not African we're Ethiopian. Mm. The nationality then, comes first. Okay, all right. Right. But then, if you go to most countries in North Africa, in particular, like Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, even though they're even though geographically they're on the African continent, they themselves will will do what Ethiopians do. They will put their nationality first before saying, hey, we're African. Wow. Like even with the World Cup that just took place. Right, right. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Morocco, Morocco was the last standing country. Semi-finalist, you know, semi-final, right. Exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. the last standing country in the tournament. And there was a report from there was a report that stated that the uh, that the head coach of the Moroccan team said basically said you know where like we we don't basically we don't really claim Africa we we claim Morocco hmm. and which is a, which is uh, not surprising but still sad because. If you're in, if you're in Freetown, like I was in, like we were in Freetown, we're watching these World Cup games, and we're supporting all the African countries. Right. We're supporting Ghana. We're supporting Tunisia. We are supporting hell, even France. Because let's keep it real, France <laughs> is basically, but right, that's right. Any <laughs> African there, we were supporting them. Cameroon whoever it was right um so to hear that statement was disheartening is is really disheartening but it really just goes back to just the history mm. of of just the continent going back to the the partition of the african continent which led to the colonialism mm. that we still see remnants of today going back to the berlin conference where the partitioning of the continent took place, <laughs> um, like there's a there's a deep history there. Mm. I think that's so insightful because again, uh, obviously, again, I'm I'm I don't I'm not black, I'm not African American, so I can't understand your experience. But I can only imagine for those that might be listening that are black that that would like to you know you said go go to Africa and potentially even live in Africa. Like you said, again, is your experience right? It's not like it's not a generalized experience, but is not going to be 100% for sure that just because you go to the continent of Africa, if you go to a specific country, you're going to be brought in with open arms, right? And might it could be that way, but not 100% guarantee that that would necessarily be your experience, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think as far as if I had to think of something that's analogous to, like it's kind of like even with the, uh, we think about just the makeup of the Latinx community, right? Mm -hmm. um you have 
you have Afro Latinx folks, but then you also have folks who are in other other parts of you know Central South America, and culturally there's they're very diverse. Mm-hmm. Like if you go to like my my mother in law is Panamanian. Mm-hmm. I have friends who. But I also have friends who are from Nicaragua. I have friends who are from Chile, Dominican Republic. They talk about some of the colorism and some of the the humanization they experience, where they have to almost, where it's like they don't even, they're not even considered like Latinx in the same way that maybe white present or white passing Latinx are mm-hmm. are seen. Right, right, right. So there's so. It's not exactly the same, but there's a similar type of tension right. in terms of like how you leave with the nationality as opposed to as opposed to like where you're from. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, 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 one hundred percent. And and also, I think another thing that could be under this, this umbrella of the entire world is that colorism exists everywhere on every corner of this globe. Sure does. Right, like that that our blackness. It's not. It's not just within. You know, the African diaspora community, like anti-blackness is everywhere. I don't care what your nationality is, where you're, you know, how you identify ethnically. Mm-hmm. There's it is there as well. Right, right. 100%, unfortunately. And, and, you know, the hope is, right, with people such as yourself traveling, the places you travel to and live with your family, this podcast is my hope. Is that these experiences, uh, you know, are broadening people's horizons, and not just people obviously that are traveling to these places, but people that get to, you know, where their places become diversified, where they get people from different walks of life, and hopefully, you know, like you said, that anti-blackness and you know that colorism is lowered to some degree, and those you know biases and discriminatory practices that are sometimes, like you said, just inherent in the way people grow up, because like you said, they lead with something above something else, right? Like I lead with. Um, you know, Dominican. So therefore, everything else go- is beneath that. But they don't realize what that necessarily might n- mean or who that negates, right? When you say, I'm Dominican, and if you look at someone else, well, you're not as Dominican as me because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's exclusive, right, In terms, instead of inclusive. And we're all about that inclusivity. Clearly, I went, I saw your talk. <laughs> so, okay, so Sierra, so, so, Sierra, so Sierra Leone. All right, so... Again, you said your transition, you felt affirmed, right? You felt affirmed. And you have you said you have a family. How many kids do you have? You don't mind me asking. Um, I actually we have a five year old son. Okay. It's a five year old son right now. Okay. So it's it's a we're we're a family of three at the moment. Awesome, awesome. Fantastic. And so are you working there in Sierra Leone? Um, no, I've been so I pretty much do freelance work. Okay. Uh, so like I do I do some math tutoring with with uh, secondary level students there, uh, but also um, work remotely uh, with uh, different agencies back in the States. So I actually do freelance writing for EdPost, okay. uh, which is under Bright Beam Network. So it's an educational media company that does all kinds of reporting around K-12 education. So I've been writing for them for the past a couple of years, pretty much for as long as I've been abroad. Um, I've also, I also do consulting uh, with different schools and um, universities. 
So, awesome. you know, I, I do dab with a lot of different things nice, just nice. to stay busy. and so okay so right given that your work obviously enables you and allows you right to be working you said remotely freelancing so you could be here like i said in boston or back in sierra leone but take us through what is like for you because again you said your dad is from ghana right but your your upbringing is in the united states what is it like Mm -hmm. for you internally having this um I don't know this 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 uh, this culturally diverse experience that you've had, right? Living abroad, but being that you grew up in the United States, what is it like being an you know a black man from the United States walking around Sierra Leone and being who you are? You said you're a firm. What was it like for you internally as well? Um, man, it's a long journey, brother. Because at some point, just through education, I had to. I had to just be okay with the duality of my identity. Mm. I had to be okay with the fact that, yes, I'm American, but I'm also Ghanaian. Mm. So the way that I identify myself is is as Ghanaian American. Because the way I was socialized into the way I was socialized is very much Americanized. Mm. I can't deny that. I can't erase that from who I am because I spent most of my life living in the country. But I also feel Ghanaian just through the customs, through my morals, through my principles. I mean, I grew up eating the food. Um, I can't really speak the language that well, but I understand it. I'm I'm taking uh, tree courses as we speak because I want to be able to pass that mother tongue gone to my son mm. so he didn't have to go through what I went through mm. uh, growing up because there's a there's even a tension there like being like even growing up like when I was in Ghana uh, years ago as a teenager even though I looked like everybody else the moment I started to talk they realized oh you're not from here no you're oh you're an American boy and they start to treat you a little differently. Mm. You know, like, oh, you're not you're not Ghanaian enough. And it's almost like they shame you for having the privileges that you had. Mm. And and I'm thinking to myself, well, listen, I don't think I realize how badly I just wanted to fit in. Like I don't want to be seen as just an American kid. Like I actually like I can remember going to school and trying to speak a like a pseudo Ghanaian accent just to be able to blend in with everybody else and then when I get home I just speak the way I speak wow that's that's, <laughs> because, that's deep wow like I would try to do it just to let them know that hey like I'm no better than you are I actually just want to be one of the guys like I'm not trying to be put on the pedestal because right. of where I grew uh, I just happened to grow up there. Like I have no control over where I was born. This is what I was exposed to. And, you know, I can't help that. But I do look back and I just think, man, I wish I could speak my language. Man. And I'm still trying to acquire that proficiency so that I can feel even more connected uh, to, to my culture, more connected to, to even my own family. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean that that resonates one hundred percent with me because I, like you said, the duality 
uh, my parents are Dominican Republic, right? They immigrated. I was born and raised in New York. And when I used to go to DR, I went to DR by myself. They're like, oh, you're not really Dominican. You're a New York Dominican. So even And that made me feel bad. I was like, damn, you're not even accepting me as one of you. But I understand that. You said, I can't change the fact that I was born and raised in the United States. And when I understand Spanish and I speak Spanish fluently, but it's clear as day that it's an accent that is from the States, not one that was, you know, brought up in the Dominican Republic. And that was hard. And it still is, I would say, to a certain degree, hard to deal with when you feel like, these are my people. But like they're like, yeah, but not really, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and exactly. Then, <laughs> and then living here in Costa Rica, you know, I feel, and I was. This is my next question to you because I've spoken to many uh, black expats living abroad, and one thing they've always mentioned to me, I want to know if this is the case for you. They mentioned this blue passport privilege. Uh, like one of my friends, Brian, shout out to Brian, who's listening. He says he told me one time he was living in Abu Dhabi that he never felt more American before ever in his life. And I want to know if that's your experience um, also as a black man living abroad. Brother, you talk about blue passport privilege. Listen, we have like maroon passport privilege because we're actually, we actually have a diplomat passport. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't even know about that. (laughs) Because, because of the fact that, you know, my wife works with, works with uh, Peace Corps, which is connected to the state. Right. So because of that, we do have those privileges. So like when we were moving to moving abroad, we had to switch out our blue U.S. passports for these maroon ones because it's a, we, we have a special status. And I could tell you, brother, and, and I talk about and I talked about this a little bit in the in the talk that you saw uh, through ISS about mm-hmm. positionality. Right. Like how that changes depend on the setting you're in. So, you know, here in America, we're kind of a lower to middle, middle class family, right? Mm-hmm. That's just, that is where we are socioeconomically. But then you go abroad, particularly to a country like Sierra Leone, we're elevated to a higher class just because of the fact that we work with the, uh, the U.S. mission. So now we're having access to the best schools. You know, my son's able to do any kind of extracurricular activity he wants, and we're able to afford it. In some cases, we're able to get some of these things for free. Mm, wow. Um, we're able to rub, you know, rub um, elbows with other with other expats and dignitaries from other countries. So there's definitely you definitely feel the difference. We're able, I mean, just the fact that we're able to afford help, you know, as far as a nanny, housekeeper, a driver. Right, right, right. Security guard. And we're able to, and we're able to afford all that within our budget and still do what we want to do. Like these are real privileges that we, we experience. Um, and it's to the point where, wow, like being like being here, like being in Sierra Leone, like I felt like, wow, like I don't, I don't feel. Now, get me wrong, you, you still deal with you know racism and and different things within like different NGOs and stuff. Mm-hmm. It just manifests itself in a different form, but I feel safer. We, we definitely feel much safer abroad. 
Right. I don't have to worry about my son going to school and and um, you know, feel like he's less than. I don't have to worry about my son getting shot or being stopped by police because of this color of the skin. Like I don't have to worry about these things that I'll have to worry about here in the States when I'm abroad. Mm. It's a very it's a much safer um, living experience, even though it does come with its own set of challenges. Um, it's nothing compared to here. Right. Um, I even I even told my wife if we can stay abroad for as long as we can, I like I would prefer to do that. Like I I'm not trying to go back to the states anytime soon. Like if I'm if we're able to raise. Um, our son and future children abroad and then bring them to the States during college, that would be ideal. Wow. This is something that I, that is something that's always on my mind because you mentioned this, the, the, the juxtaposition uh, and you said the positionality that one experiences how fluid that is depending on your context, right? And, and where you are. Um, one thing that I try to think about myself, because again, we're from, we're, you know, we both grew up in the States and we we could understand what marginalization might look like from different lenses, but we know what that looks like, right? Generally speaking, in, in the United States. But then we go into we go into a broad setting, and then, like you said, the maroon passport in your case, <laughs> the blue passport in my case, yeah. it carries a, it carries a weight. And of course, yes, privilege in itself, from my perspective, privilege in itself is not a bad thing. Is what who is then on the bottom on the bottom of that totem pole that you're marginalizing based on your, your your newfound positionality that to me is when it becomes problematic, right? Because again, like you said, if I could afford now, because same, same as you, right, I could afford a housekeeper. All right, that benefits my life, right? How does that, but now I'm looking at it from the other end and I'm like, wait a minute. I used to go with my mom to clean offices when I was a kid and here hey. I am seeing someone clean my house. And That's real. And that's, yeah, and that's, it's hard for me to kind of to, like it, it it uh makes me very appreciative of the life that I live, but I try to as like how do I take this a step further? How do I challenge this privilege in a way where again where the things that I worked hard for that I you know that I'm benefiting from, you know I don't want necessarily for all those things to be all of a sudden removed and for me to feel at a place where I'm not able to live the life that I feel I want or deserve. But at the same time, how I'm making things you know we talk about inclusion, how I'm making things more equitable from my privileged position, right? As an expat, as someone that's living abroad and has this positionality due to where I happen to be born and the language that I happen to speak. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's the part that it it, it fucks with me. It, re it really does. It fucks with me. And I would like to know what's your personal perspective on all those things I just said. <laughs> man, my brother, I I can attest to everything that you're saying, man. Because I feel the same exact way. I share the same sentiment. Um, just understanding the privileges that I have, whether they're earned or unearned, right? Right. I the reality is the fact that we're able to afford all those people I mentioned, and it only and it only cost us the equivalent of how much we would spend on, I don't know. A pair of J's. Mm. 
Just let's just put that perspective. Cause what a pair of J's goes for how much now? Like right. I don't know, three hundred, four hundred. Right, right. And for those that don't know, he's talking about uh, Jordans, Nike Air Jordans. Jordans. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Air Jordans. <laughs> I Jordan sneakers. Yes. Right. So just thinking about just just putting it into perspective, the fact that I could afford those people for that amount of money, which is the equivalent of a pair of J's that we will save money just to buy. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. So, but as far as like how do we use our positionality to for good, I think number one is having an awareness of that positionality. Mm. Being aware of where we are, being aware of the fact that we're able to do certain things that others cannot. Um, understanding that we're in a position to advocate for those who are marginalized. Like uh, I'll give you an example. When I was in Ethiopia, when we were in Ethiopia, we had a security guard who had been there um, before we had moved there. He had been working as a guard at the house for a number of years before we moved. And he didn't really know how to drive. He didn't really have any other skills other than just being a guard. So um, when we learned that um, the embassy was going to assign 24-7 security guards to all of the mission posts, we, we knew that it would lead to him not having a job anymore. Mm. So right then and there, we said, all right, we're going to give him some driving lessons. Um, you know, my wife was able to have one of the, you know, one of the employees come to the house to give free driving lessons and, you know, teach him how to drive and stuff. Because we knew that he needed another skill set. So we do that with him. He ends up becoming a pretty decent driver. And now, by the time time we left, he was able to say, hey, not only can I serve as, as a guard, I can also be a driver as well. So I could play multiple roles within the household. Right, right. That's a skill. And also, his English, he he actually received some English courses as well from the previous um, director who was living there before us. So I think one way you can, one way you can definitely help is by doing simple things like that. Right. Understanding that English is a premium anywhere you go internationally. Mm-hmm. If you're able to speak English fluently, that alone gets you in the door for a lot of jobs. Yes. Particularly for like the local for you know local citizens, right? If you are able to speak fluent English and you're able to write it, that alone puts you at an advantage. Right. 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 I mean you you you're speaking gems here these are the all concrete ways like you said and everyone has their own context and all ways they can help those are very those are obviously solid ways right like helping someone in their skills to acquire a new skill um an exchange of goods that benefits right mutually but benefits that person right in in a in a in a great way and i think um i think and i and i say this because i actually did a paper on this for my dissertation um, I do think that expats of color, right, black and brown expats are living abroad, primarily from obviously Western countries, the U.S., U.K., or whatever the case may be, we're in, we're in a unique position 
where we understand what it's like to be marginalized from our national context based on a multitude of identities, right? And then we acquire, right, this newfound, quote-unquote, expat status, where now our nationality is elevated to a place that we never really experienced before. And like you said, now, like you said, our language, our nationality, other things are now heightened, right? Heightened, and they mean a lot more than those other things in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And what I found this through my research that that these teachers of color, I interview, I interview teachers of color, that they are aware of of one and the, the experience of marginalization, but they're also aware, like you just said, of the privileges that they have. But what's not clear, what wasn't clear from what I found was how they're addressing that privilege. Because you said one thing is awareness. That's step one. Now, what do you do about it, right? What do you do with this privilege that you now have that you know what it looks like, right? You know what it looks like from a national context, but now here you are experiencing this very thing that you might not have experience back home, wherever home may be. So I think what you're saying is is a wonderful thing because there's so many things that we could do right now as in this new socioeconomic status that we have, right, um, abroad where we can help people, like I said, others that are marginalized that might look like us, right? Because again, <laughs> but from my, at least from my perspective, back home, anybody look at me was already marginalized, right? It's like, who am I helping? We're all in the same boat. But now abroad is different because again, you and I are Latino, but here you are, you're a local, and unfortunately, because you're a local, because you don't have the the, man, the command of English language that I do, I'm now considered at a higher echelon than you are. But now what do mm-hmm. I do about that? Do I just accept that for what it is? Like, well, s- such is life. Don't dumb the brakes. Or do I actually do something about that to make sure that, wait a minute, nah, just because I have a higher command of English language than she does or he does, and my education comes from the States, that doesn't mean that this person's experience or their inherent values and what they bring into the world is of is of lesser value, right? Um, no, and I experienced that in my school, where I try to make sure I'm like, oh, Angel, make sure you're not talking, you know, always talking over locals, right? Make sure you're letting them have their say too, you know. Make sure you're, you're giving space to breathe here, you know, because um, it's very easy. You, you you know this better than I do, right? These unconscious biases that we have, and just the way that we are as Americans, we usually very quick to talk on certain moments, but not everyone's like that. And we can't just assume because someone's not talking means they got nothing to say. Maybe it means they don't feel like they can say something. And we know what that feels like, right? When you're in a space where you're like, wait a minute, I don't know if I should speak right now. I don't want to sound like an idiot. But yeah, here you are on the other end of that. So I feel like people such as yourself, Kwame, and, and me and others that are listening to this podcast that are abroad, we have a lot of things that we can do to make our experiences, right, and the experiences of others a lot more equitable than we are. Because the last thing that I want to do, and I'm sure you agree with this, I don't want to come out here to Costa Rica, wherever I go to next, and impose a certain value system that, of course, is inherent for me from where I'm born and raised and whatever my family values are, right? It's like, no, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm it's making sense for whatever context I'm in. And that it makes sense what? for you guys and you don't feel like I'm here, I am. Here's a, a neo-colonialist kind of approach to trying to fix, quote unquote, fix things, right? Because you think you're the you're the quote unquote savior over here. You know you know best. So I try to be I try to be you know cognizant of those things. But easier said than done. <laughs> no, it is, and I think I think just in general, the best thing you can give anybody is the opportunity to develop skills. Right. I feel like skill development is the key here. Right just the acquisition of knowledge that will allow for you to develop those necessary career readiness skills. 
like this basic things like how to write a resume. <laughs> um, if you have, if you're fortunate to have access to technology, how do you set up a LinkedIn profile? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, having access to an, an English tutor, if it, because if you think about it, most missions, if you go to most American embassies across the globe. In order for local folks to work in those embassies, they have to pass a basic literacy test. Right. In order to even qualify to be an employee there. That's a standard requirement across the board in, in all U.S. missions across the world. And there are some who are brilliant, know the whole context of their country, but because they can't pass a test, they can't get a job. Right, right. And then you, And even when you do work within the embassy. So in the case like in the case of you know Sierra Leone and Sierra Leone, we have Sierra Leoneans who work within the embassy. Highly educated, brilliant in their own right, but because of their nationality, they don't have access to all the things that um the American employees have access to. You know, like they can't like they can't access certain parts of the of the embassy, for instance, mm. even though they work there, right. um, their pay can only be up to us can only be up to a certain um, certain grade, even even if they're overqualified for the jobs that they have. Wow. So, these are real things. If you go to if you work with an NGO or an embassy or any kind of those entities. At this point, they probably have a DEI committee, some type of governing body where they talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, the question becomes, what's the purpose of them having these committees? Mm. Are these committees up to just have friendly talks, friendly talks about what diversity is, the importance of belonging, like the more romanticized version of that, of, of that vision? Or are these committees set up to figure out well how can we how can we push for policies and guidelines that will create an equitable playing field for our um, host country workers our local staff mm-hmm. how can we how can we create opportunities for them to get more money get higher pay so they can better provide for their families and and not in a saviorist way, right, right, right. But way that, but in a way that's fair and equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of language are we using to ensure that we're we're affirming them and honoring them for who they are? Right, right. Like right. little things like that. The same thing that we deal with here in the states, where. We're telling white folks to do this, that, and the third. It's the same thing that we have to do <laughs> abroad. Because <laughs> the, the local people are looking at us as the white folks. <laughs> That's true. That's real talk. That's real true. talk. That's true. Even, the, even, like, even for people of color, Americans of color, who are expats in different countries, they are looked at as white folks. Because of the fact that we have a certain amount of uh, 
we're of a higher socioeconomic class mm-hmm. just by being um, connected to America. Right. That's just the reality of it. At the end of the day, especially if you're if you're an American expat who works with an NGO or works with the embassy or or just any or in any capacity with the State Department, you're only in these countries for two to three years at a time mm-hmm. on average. Mm-hmm. So yep, yep. don't think that you have to be the one to change everything. Because once you leave, another person is going to come to take to take over your position. Yep. And they're probably gonna just erase everything that you've done. Preach. That's why it's more, <laughs> that's why it's more important for you to focus on the systems, mm. focus on the protocols that are already in place. Because guess what? If you're able to put the work in with that, that's going to last longer. Mm-hmm. than what you got to do at the interpersonal level. So just important to note. No, that I mean, that is... <laughs> I'm glad you put that in there because it's, it's something that I I say is in my meetings. My DI come up, listen, I'm going to be gone. Like, oh, the majority of people here, we're going to be gone. So then who are the people left with the changes here? It's the people that have been here 20, 30 years, which are obviously locals. So it's like you said, the inter- it's more about the systemic things that we could do. So, I mean, well well said. But I, I'm not going to close it out just yet. We have a last, I have a, a final segment that I like to do with my guests. It's a lightning round segment. So basically, I ask, ask you a question. The first thing that comes to your mind is what you answer with. Cool? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. All right. Favorite place in Sierra Leone? Favorite place in Sierra Leone? Favorite place, I'm yeah. going to... I'm going to go with um, Remedy. Why Remedy? Where's that? And what? Why? That? Okay. <laughs> so I say Remedy because one is owned by a Sierra Leonean, and two, if you want to get local food, like really good local food, that's the place you go. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, there are other. Obviously, there are like. Other um, restaurants there that are more expat-y. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you, if you want the real experience, the real Sierra Leone experience, go to Remedy. All right. Favorite, that's your favorite restaurant, favorite place, Remedy. Um, yeah. Biggest misconception people have about living in the continent of Africa? Um, basically that everybody lives in huts and they live in rural communities. No, um, Africa's... As a continent, is a lot more developed than people realize. I mean, if you haven't been t- paying attention to what's going on in Ghana, uh, you've just been asleep. Like mm-hmm. Kenya, um, obviously South Africa, um, Senegal, uh, like so many countries that are very, you know, very developed mm. and are on the come up. Um, Africa is coming up. There's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot out here. People just gotta come and see it for themselves. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, what which country would you like to potentially move to next? Oh dang, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> honestly, my wife and I have never lived or visited like South America. Like I would love to explore and, and live in a South American country. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It, it, I don't okay. know. Maybe like, I don't know, Colombia, okay. um, like Brazil, like somewhere around there, okay. you know, like 
I got you. South American continent. All right. Well, I, I'll have to talk to you again on part two to see if that's where you moved to. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right. And fi- final, final question. You can answer however you want. Um, what do you want to take away from this experience that you're having in Sierra Leone? Not just obviously for yourself, but for your family and for your future endeavors, whatever that may be. What do you want to take out of this experience? Um, I think the... I think the one thing I want to take out of the experience is just the importance of affirming the humanity of others. Um, understanding understanding the influence that you have on others, whether it's direct or indirect, and using that awareness as a way to elevate other people's voices and to improve their own um, situations and contexts. So I, I think that's the one thing that Sierra Leone, more than anything, is teaching me. It's just the importance of just being connected to community and understanding that, yes, even though we're from different African countries, we still brothers and sisters and we still got to support each other. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Kwame. I most definitely did. Just dropping so many gems left and right. And again, I, I there was a reason why I attended that talk um, that he was in. Um, speaking about things that are very near and dear to my heart and things that I also researched from, from on my own, you know, speak, talking about intersectionality, how different identities intersect, um, how, you know, in different contexts, we could feel more marginalized than in others. And in other contexts, we can feel more privileged than in others. Hence the positionality that he so eloquently stated through his own experiences. But also what we can do as foreigners abroad to make others, in particular the locals, right, that might that that might have less privilege than we do in certain contexts to make things more equitable for them. And, and again, he also stated this, what I think is very important, not from a saviorist standpoint of I'm here to make your life better, but because you feel is the right thing to make things more equitable for those that are around you. And obviously, we do not live in a utopia. Life will never be perfect. But that doesn't mean we don't try to make things more equitable, especially when we can see how certain groups are marginalized over others and how certain groups have privilege over others. Um, and it's up to each individual, obviously, to decide, okay, do I want to do something about it or not? And I'm from the mindset that I think things could be done. Um, I don't think, like I said in the episode, I don't think privilege in itself is a negative thing. Is how does that privilege come about? And how does that privilege manifest? And how does it marginalize others? And if you're aware of that and you know that it marginalizes others in ways that you deem to be unfair, then from my viewpoint, obviously, <laughs> I think things should be done to try to Correct that to some degree. Um, like I said, you can't do that perfectly, but to some degree. And in real examples that he gave, right? Very concrete examples that he gave from his own experience. And I think that's def. I do think that's definitely a duty for us living abroad because there is this real thing, like he said, maroon passport privilege. If you're a diplomat, blue passport privilege. You're American or any from you know these Western countries that that many of us, um, not all of us, because there are like I've had people on the podcast that don't just come from the UK, uh, Canada, and the US. There's people that come from anywhere else or the global south, as they say, right? Things that are, that are south of the United States and the UK. 
um those stories do exist and they're out there as well but um and i would like to have more of those people on the podcast honest honestly to get more of that perspective as well um of the, those are living abroad but yeah call me just dropped gems and i, I could talk about this for another hour <laughs> but i won't because you just listen to us and kwame said so many uh, amazing things and i'll let his words speak for themselves but yeah if you like what you hear please leave a review on apple podcast follow me on spotify and any of your other favorite stream platforms see you next time this is a living color abroad peace <laughs>